Welcome to Libre Lounge, a podcast about free software, free culture, and all the other interesting aspects of user freedom. With Christopher Lemmer Weber and Serge Broklowski. Hey everyone, it's Serge, he, him pronouns from Libre Lounge. Chris is still up in the mountains uh, as we're recording this, which is right at the cusp of the 2020 new year. So uh, hopefully Chris will be back in 2020 with some awesome new shows. But this time we are really lucky because we've got Molly DeBlanc uh, with us and she has pretty much done everything in the free and open source software space. So she's done um, One Laptop Per Child, MIT OpenCourseWare, uh, edX. She was in the GNOME Foundation. Uh, she worked for the Free Software Foundation and is now president of the uh, Open Source Initiative. So uh, has done absolutely everything. Uh, welcome, Molly. Hi. Uh, it's always... I'm, I'm so glad this is an audio recording and that no one can see me because as you're describing things I've done, I'm just like, oh, I guess now I, now I feel embarrassed and awkward. Yeah. No one needs to know that. Like I record this, uh, like surrounded by the like, cardboard boxes and in sweatpants and, uh, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. Um, but that's, that's the, that's the beauty of, uh, the theater of the mind that is, that is podcasting. Um, so as, as far as anyone's concerned, we're like, Sitting in a, a luxurious studio with cool chairs and potted plants. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Um, so what's great about, uh, you and, and I only got to meet you in 2019 and we, we met a little bit at, um, you know, at the free software foundation offices. But what mm-hmm. really inspired me was your talk at copyleft conf, which was a conference that, um, that Software Freedom Conservancy put on last year after FOSDEM, and you did the keynote. And uh, unfortunately, the 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 video and audio from that doesn't seem to be up anywhere. But it was essentially a talk on on diversity and inclusion, especially around the areas of um, underrepresented minorities and also in mental health and free software. And it blew me away. That's interesting to hear that. That's what do you remember from it almost a year later? Um, cause for me, the talk, one of the, my goals, uh, in the work I do is to shift the conversation of technology and free software and privacy and security and all, all those things that we value as like technological needs away from these outlying cases away from political dissidents, away from journalists, um, which are, are very important categories of people. Uh, but also to be able for, to have us talk about how anyone and everyone is impacted by these things. Um, so I guess I thought about it, you know, I didn't think about it as a diversity and inclusion talk. I thought, I thought about it as a, like, let's, reframe technological oppression uh to 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 the everyone context uh by looking at the ways that they're interacting with technology that might be problematic it might be and it and it, it also just might be that the way i've heard these topics framed is is so 
different just in, in terms of the, the, the way that these topics are discussed and introduced within the free software space around us as a collective group rather than as an in, as individual pursuits. And that's something that I think you've, you've talked about as well is, is this not necessarily uh, fiscally libertarian, but socially libertarian viewpoint that we in the community have around these topics. Yeah. Um, that's you like, you've got it. Like that's a thing that I have been wanting to do and wanting to think about more. Something that kind of has led to that in part, other than my general, one of my friends once said to me, uh, something that I love about you, Molly, is that you never blame someone for something that happened. You look at the problem as how it fits into society and like community and collective behavior. Um, which it was, it's a very complicated phrase, I guess, and I found very flattering. Um, uh, but so, so one of the, like, I say this is as a game that, um, I play with a friend of mine is that we'll say to somebody like, we'll say to each other, like, how is avocado toast a free software issue? Or how is, um, like traffic lights or school start times? How are these technology issues? Uh, and they really change how you, when you do that, you really change how you think about things because you realize that everything is impacting people, but also that like, there are these networks of people and these network effects and how it impacts the individual, but it also impacts like the collective and the society and the community. Yeah. I think that's definitely an area where we in the free software community have done, I would say a poor job of, of bringing these larger issues of freedom and collective freedom to everyone. We've, we've kind of, we've kind of stopped at the, you know, our freedom ends where our computer ends mm -hmm. rather than looking, you know, and, and, and we of course proselytize that other people should join us. And I think you've even said, you know, that, that's, that's in part uh, due to the idea that one individual can make a difference, right? Yeah. I can, con I have my domain of control and that's an important, that's, that's crucial to motivating people to work on these things. But it doesn't move us collectively forward on the increasing encroachment of intrusions into our privacy, into our, uh, into our thought processes, tracking, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So speaking of awkward transitions, <laughs> um, let's talk about a topic that has been really hot on the Fediverse and a lot of our, the people that listen to this podcast or on the Fediverse. Mm -hmm. And what's been really interesting as a cis-het white dude is getting exposed to a lot of people who are uh, underrepresented and or queer and seeing how empowering that medium has been for them and seeing how they feel that they can express themselves uh, in, a, in a multitude of ways as developers as individuals and they can express their gender and other aspects of themselves and, and also, you know, talk openly about programming and some of their ethical concerns. And a, a, a topic that keeps coming up are these 
uh, I'm going to put this in air quotes, these ethical licenses. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this is not a new topic. You know, we are, some of us remember, uh, that, that this was something that was done in the eighties around South Africa. So trying to, to bring, um, a, you know, a limit to what people software could be used for. Um, and also, of course, uh, these, you know, non-commercial clauses. So, you know, you can't make money off of my work, but there's a shift now where a, these licenses are being reconsidered in a, in a more, uh, in a stronger way, but also, uh, adding new restrictions, things like, you know, you can't be a, you can't be a Nazi and use my software. And it's a, it's a complicated issue because of course, none of us are supporting Nazis. Uh, at the same time, you know, at least my concern has always been that when you place these ethical restrictions, that it, it opens you up to the threat of you not being in the majority. And then those type of restrictions being used against you. Um, and of course, you know, for these people who have been traditionally disempowered, so, you know, uh, queer people and people of color, you know, they're especially vulnerable. So that's what, that's what, you know, makes me especially concerned about what the repercussions are. But I, and I know you've got some thoughts on these things, so I'd love to hear them. Uh, you, that was a very interesting transition because there was, uh, there was a lot of stuff there. Um, and some things that I kind of want to like just take a moment to reinforce, I guess, um, before getting into what I would call the question in finger quotes, um, which is that, uh, I saw, so I've been spending a lot of time on social media lately, um, and, cause I don't know what else to do with myself right now, um, and I noticed, and I saw a tweet, uh, today that said something like, the reason why trans people are so supportive of one another on Twitter is because for some of us, that's the only affirmation we get. And, I think that's like that's kind of an important framing or a useful thing to think about when thinking about social media um or or like how people are like queer people especially in this context are using like different spaces um you know there's a lot of stuff to say about these these licenses that add restrictions um and I I don't like the term ethical licenses because I think that it's putting, like, it is literally putting ethical value and saying some, whether something is good or bad, um, whether the license itself is good or bad, uh, when we can instead look at them as something that is, is framing freedoms, um, or framing restrictions, uh, Sorry, I just had this like moment where my mind kind of shifted and I began to, I was like kind of thinking about these things a little bit differently than I was before, which is from a meta perspective, um, you can think about, you have licenses that are about, uh, you know, like, I'm going to say respecting freedoms, but what, like, what that really means is by making explicit that people have rights. Um, and then we have licenses that, restrict freedoms by which, you know, makes it clear that people don't have rights, um, with that being the default, um, which is kind of a shame to think about. Uh, so, 
anyways, so so we can call them ethical licenses or we can call them do you no know, harm licenses, and I like the term do you no know, harm more, um, even though some of them are not necessarily about harm, but about other sorts of restrictions. But we can also think about them in terms of licenses that uh that kind of encapsulate different sorts of things that you can and can't do or are placing like you know open source like I think the term that I've used most often is open source but um licenses uh like in having just conversations with people um yeah so that wasn't very like well that, that that didn't feel like a very cohesive thing because like in talking to you there there really was this like oh we could think about it this way you're talking about it this way couldn't we? Um <laughs> This is this is the problem with it just being like a conversation on my computer, which but is that's, like, But that's okay. Like this is why it's this is this podcast is is sold as a casual conversation because mm-hmm. I you know I I feel like you get more out of that when, than when you have someone who's got a practiced answer, especially when you're, I'd rather talk about these topics than just talk about, like, let's talk about your career, right? This is not, yeah. an, you know, it's, it's, I, although I love, you know, having those kind of conversations with, with people, it's, it's far more satisfying to have something where somebody actually really has to think about these things and, and consider. And, and, and frankly, hey, I had more time to think about what I was going to ask you than what you were going to answer. <laughs> So, um, <laughs> that's, yeah. th- that's my trick here is that, you know, I, I know I'm going to interview you and I, and I have an idea what I'm going to ask you. Um, so I, I don't, I just didn't expect to have an epiphany in the middle of the oh. conversation. Well, what was the, so what was the epiphany? Um, the, the epiphany being that like there, you know, we have this, this binary of proprietary and free or proprietary and open or, you know, whatever term you want to use. Um, uh, and then, you know, we've, we've created this third category, which is the, it's free, but, or it's open, but, um, and one category is about restrictions being the default. One category is about like unrestrictions, like the lack of restrictions being the default. And then there's this middle space of like, we're not placing restrictions on it except for these things with the, with the, the butt in there. Um, and the butt, you know, when we talk about ethical licenses and do not harm licenses, like we're talking about these, these open butt licenses. Um, and the thing I haven't heard anyone talking about yet, which is kind of what you were hinting at is that we have not addressed what feels like an inevitable step in adding um uh condition conditions conditional licenses right these are conditional licenses um we haven't talked a lot about when the conditions become things that i at least would consider harmful right so we say do no harm licenses so it's like you can't use this software to advance a nuclear program um or develop nuclear weapons um, which like seems straightforward from a nukes are bad first, like let's, let's all just assume that nukes are bad. Um, and then eventually that like the, the condition will, somebody will propose the condition, you know, everybody can use it except for queer people, or you can use it, but not in medical situations where people will, 
um, like for abortion providers, like abortion providers can't use this. Um, so I think kind of what you were getting at was that there are, there, there will eventually be a sphere of conditional, or there, there should be at least the sphere that conditional licenses will at some point, like, be used to explicitly oppress, um, and explicitly oppress people who, uh, need, well, I'm gonna say need those freedoms more than everyone else. Um, and this isn't to say that not everybody needs freedom, uh, or like needs rights, like needs these No, but rights. of course the empowerment yeah. that, that our stuff provides is amplified if you don't have the fiscal means to get at it otherwise, right? Like I can afford a copy of Microsoft Windows and I can afford a copy of Microsoft Office, but you know, that that's my choice my choice to use free alternatives is based on my liberty whereas in, for some people you know they'll they're they're either entirely locked out of that due to cost or they're forced to do it you know they're forced to use it illegally um and 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 I've noticed and I think you brought you might have brought this up in, in your talk is that in some ways people who are underprivileged are at a greater disadvantage because they are expected to use the the standard or the mainstream software um, of the day. So, you know, somebody who may not be able to afford Microsoft Office is nonetheless expected to have it. Uh, whereas I'm, you know, in, I'm lucky and privileged enough to be able to insist on the free alternatives. Microsoft Office is in it. Well, your example is interesting because of the focus on, on like, cost. Um, I think that, uh, you know, people, people start from different places, right? And people have different needs. Um, and people are like, I think, I just think that right now the state we have of technology in, uh, the United States, um, and other countries as well that I'm less qualified to talk about. Um, though I certainly know things, uh, is is oppressive like the default state of technology is oppressive um and so do you mean be, because it's surveillance tech uh, be, surveillance because capitalism surveillance, or something of, else because of surveillance capitalism because of proprietary technology because of restrictions being placed on us like um because your ipad is not a thing that you are designed to be able to build stuff with it's a thing you're designed that's designed for you to be able to remix with because people are at different kinds of risks right um so they need technology to come to them from different places and they need different provisions so it's not just like okay you're poor so you can't afford microsoft office it's like so one of the examples i used at copy left con um was about um uh what are those things that they use to, to breathalyzers, breathalyzers. It was about breathalyzers. Um, and in Florida, uh, breathalyzers. Um, so, so, so you, you cal so one using a breathalyzer, usually a, a law enforcement official, um, or a cop, if you will, uh, a cop will calibrate the breathalyzer, um, in a way, or they'll calibrate it and then they'll get a reading from a person. And that will tell them like what the blood out their blood alcohol content is, um, except they're really easy to miscalibrate, um, and you can do that intentionally or accidentally. Um, so whether or not a breathalyzer 
is giving an actual readout that reflects the, the, the actual state of someone's blood alcohol level, um, is like, it's not something you can trust. Um, because like, it's easy to miscalibrate. So in Florida, the, the, the settings, and I think it's even the source code needs to be available for breathalyzers, um, in order for, uh, the results from one to be admissible in a court. Um, now, like, this is relevant because, um, people who get pulled, or, like, why I thought this was relevant, um, is that, um, there are skewed, uh, numbers of, like, the, the, the statistics around who's getting pulled over, like, obviously very skewed, um, very racially skewed, uh, and then who's getting breathalyzed, like, who's, who's being submitted to breathalyzers. So you're getting these drunk driving rates that might not actually reflect the, the reality of drunk driving because different people are being targeted, like, people are being targeted because of how they look. And then on top of that, like, there's a space for them to be even further targeted because the technology is broken. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. And, and as you say, yeah, that, that places them at a, at a greater risk mm-hmm. in, in every way. So I, I want to rewind a little bit though, because as yeah. you were talking, I had a, I had an epiphany of my own about licenses, which uh, I hadn't really considered. So if we look at the history of free software licenses, we see that, that we have, and I say we, the free software community has embedded their ethics and morals into our licenses. Mm-hmm. And we kind of, we assume that, right? At, at this point, we assume that our, our morals and ethics are put into licenses. And if you look at it from that angle, the, the, the licenses that are non-free, but are sort of dipping their toe in the water of freedom. So that would be the non-derivatives licenses. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, t- we talked about this in an episode and I'll link to that in the show notes where we talked specifically about these non-free licenses in some depth, but, um, you know, in some ways you could say, well, a non-derivative license is, is the ethic of no one but me can speak on my behalf, right? So it, it's, it's about, it's about uh, empowerment. Um, as, as well, of course, is about, about attribution, but it's also about empowerment of saying, you know, no, no one should be able to speak on my behalf. And then non-commercial has traditionally been thought of as kind of just a way of, of getting money. So only I can control my money, but you know, there are also situations in which people may want to use it because they don't believe in capitalism at all. So they're using the non-commercial license simply as a defense against uh, commerce, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, commerce of all, of all types. And so if you look at these other restrictions in that, in that same framework, then maybe the, maybe the answer isn't, oh, well, you know, this isn't free, but rather uh, I think this is where we as a community have failed is, is not just address why it might hurt you, but why we choose the particular ethics that we do and why we carve out the space in in the way that we do and we say well we want this space to be free in these ways for these reasons mm-hmm. you know again and as in a con as contrasted against the way that i've traditionally heard this argument which is well that's not free software that's not open source and then end of discussion so I don't think that's free software or open source. I will, well, it's like, not. It's not like, free software or open source. No, you're yeah. absolutely right. But the question is, <laughs> you didn't why say that not? actually. Um, uh, 
uh, I, so, so one thing that I think pretty, that I feel pretty strongly that I think is true, something that I believe is true, is that, um, licenses are actually not the place for ethics. Um, I, I have not thought about what I'm going to say next very much. Um, but that licenses, like, it is, it is, licenses are about giving permission and then, or, or making explicit that there, that there is permission. Um, and then communities are about ethics and that, um, all these, these things about ethical values and, and morals and like what's right and what's wrong and speaking for ourselves and how we're representing each other and like whether or not we value capitalism um is like that should come from the social things around technology and around software and around licenses um so like i think we've so this, this kind of ties into something you said earlier about the sort of like the techno libertarianism with the social libertarianism which is you know we have the image of the the hacker at the computer by themselves um in the dark with a hoodie on um or maybe in their pajamas and the light in their room um but these are not mutually exclusive these are not mutually exclusive i'm in fact in a room with a light on uh not wearing a hoodie though i wish i was at the moment because it is kind of chilly um we have that image but but it's because we, we frame the conversation of free software around individual and technology and it's like it's about the software and it's about what the hacker can do with the software and it's about what um what the technical implications are of the software as opposed to what the societal implications are. Like and we're seeing a shift of that happening, which I think is really great. Like with people saying, Well, my you know, I don't want my technology to be used for um like imprisoning children. Um and they're not looking at licenses to re- like to manage that, but they're looking at like this, this the social aspect around the technology, the community, the power of the technologists, the collective organizing, all of that to like create that reality. That was great. <laughs> I think there's a, there's going to be a lot for me to chew on in what you just said. Like I'll, I'll be thinking about this for the next six months. Um. <laughs> So let's talk, let's talk about something easier like algorithmic <laughs> bias and facial recognition systems. <laughs> um, yeah, easy topics. Um, uh, so I, I've spent the past few days context. Um, I gave a talk at All Things Open about, um, uh, ring doorbells and, um, the, like, and, and IoT devices, like IoT devices in general, and I was looking at ring doorbells and smart locks as kind of my case studies. Um, and I was asked to give the talk again, um, at Thawsdem in February. Um, and the conversation has changed so much since then because we have more examples and public examples and like the Washington Post and ABC News and today and all these media outlets covering Cases where individual security has been compromised, um, by 
specifically ring doorbells and like not just doorbells but like ring cameras and like these home surveillance systems um <laughs> this is this is this, this is relevant really um so i've been so i i was like oh i need to like update my talk um and so i've been reading about algorithmic bias and facial surveillance um papers uh, on it specifically like where failure points are in these uh proprietary algorithms proprietary systems which is just like Stuff like, oh, it turns out that, uh, black men are rated as being, like, things that do emotion recognition. Think black men, even smiling black men, are angrier than white men. Um, and things around failure rates, like, oh, it turns out that, like, the failure rate of recognizing women is higher than that of recognizing men. Um, and, like, even more so for, like, women of color, um, and I was reading a paper by, I just, I just started reading a paper, um, by, uh, Haas Keys, I think that's how their name is pronounced, um, about, uh, like failures of gender recognition. Um, and like part of these things are about data sets and part of like the data sets that, like, the, that, um, these AIs are being trained on. And part of it is also just like the structure that we're, building for them i.e things like building in gender binaries um or like having there's there's an there's i learned that there's a um a like an official chart for recognizing skin tones where skin tones are assigned a number um but like let's say you have images of people and so like the fact that we're assigning skin tone a number and then deriving race based on like the skin tone number is also like not great. So you kind of have these two sides of what's happening with algorithmic bias. I mean, this came up because I wanted to have, because it's now that we're talking about, I guess this is me now just going off topic. Sorry. Um, but now that we're talking about security of the individual um, as a problem with technology, like with like IOT devices, like, we're beginning to acknowledge that IoT devices are insecure and that impacts individuals in their private spaces. We need to start thinking about how IoT devices and surveillance affects communities um, and uh, like how it's not just about your like privacy as an individual um, in your home, but it's about what's happening outside. So I was looking at algorithmic bias um, specifically around facial recognition, uh, because when you're looking at the external, like literally the external, so rather than having your camera in your house looking at your family, you're having your camera outside looking at your neighborhood. Um, like, where are the impacts happening there? I, I, wish I, I wish I had the exact project that I'm thinking about uh, on the top of my tongue, but I don't because this is, this is an impromptu conversation. <laughs> But in some ways, this was reminding me of, of course, I'm going to get the details wrong. I believe in Detroit, there was a project to green the city. So plant a whole bunch of trees. Mm -hmm. And in traditionally black neighborhoods, this, uh, you know, and Detroit is a tradition, you know, a predominantly black city. It was failing. It was just failing on its face or falling on its face, I guess is the, is the expression. Yeah. And. The reason was it was that they were bringing in these external, uh, people to, you know, to come to these houses. So external, let's just say white people coming to houses of black people and saying, I want to plant a whole bunch of trees in your neighborhood. 
and it'll improve your property values. It'll make things cooler and it has all these benefits. And people were saying, no, they didn't want that. And, and on its face, it looks strange. Why wouldn't you want somebody to plant a tree? But um, when you look at the historical context around this, it had to do with the fact that the, the trees in these neighborhoods were actually cut down by the government um, during during times of protest or or for budget cuts or other reasons, and so now the you know the government comes in, cuts a bunch of trees, and then a couple, and then several decades later comes in and says, "Oh, we want to plant trees." And then you know it, it gets it also gets into issues of empowerment of terms of well, who's going to take care of these trees? Who's going to keep them mm-hmm. trimmed? Who, you know, or is it going to is this going to be another burden upon the people? And I you know when I think about the big technology companies. You know, the Googles and the Facebooks and the power that they have over, you know, and the Amazons of putting these surveillance technologies everywhere. And, and I live in New York City where we have these kiosks that have, uh, that track what wire, wireless devices are nearby and they have cameras and microphones and they're all Wi-Fi enabled, but people don't think of them as surveillance tech. But of course, of course they are. You know, and I and I think about what a disadvantage these these communities are at um, in terms of you know, and again, and I think I think it does bear some repeating about this issue because when I did some volunteering in Washington D.C. when I was in my twenties, the the demand was for was was for skills that were marketable, and the marketable skills were all the proprietary software skills. People really. You know, we're far less interested in, in the kinds of things that we were doing in the, in the, you know, the quote unquote Linux community at the time. So I, I do th- I do see this as all related and it's a challenge that we have in our community to, to bridge these, these needs and show that they are in fact connected. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to talk about. It's a, I think one of the biggest problems with talking about marginalized communities and technology, um, in general, uh, or marginalized communities even in general is like when you come at the conversation from a place of privilege. Um, and just know, like knowing how to talk about things and knowing what's okay to say and, and like what's real and what's not real. Um, now, I grew up in Philadelphia, um, which is like horrible schools, horrible schools. Um, uh, and I was thinking, I was thinking recently about like how much attention I got from my teachers as like this bright, talkative white kid in class who liked to read. Um, and then like I read papers about how yeah, girls traditionally get less attention than boys in school, but tall people, I was, I've been five, seven since I was in sixth grade. Um, so I was like the tallest kid in my school for like a little tiny bit there. But tall people get attention and white people get more attention. Um, and so like, I know I come at these conversations from this extreme place of privilege, um, and this extremely limited view, even though like I deal with a lot of sexism and a lot of experiences around the fact that I'm not read as a man. So this is just to say like, like who knows, who knows what to say? Um, because these are hard conversations to have, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's nice to be able to have conversations where we tie everything up in a nice little bow and we say, ah, oh, we've, well, here's the answer. Right. But, but, 
I think for these deeper issues, this is, this is our struggle individually and as a community to figure all this stuff out. We don't have, we don't have answers. Where I really do think that there needs to be this shift is, as you've pointed out multiple times, the difference between the way we have been looking at it, which is our, our boundaries of, well, it ends at my computer, or maybe it ends at now with IoT, well, it ends at the boundaries of my house versus the boundaries of my neighborhood, my neighbors who aren't using the same technology stack I am and who maybe can't for whatever reason, or maybe my whole city. Uh, mm-hmm. That's, that's, it's a, you know, or, and I, you know, I'd love to expand it from there, but I think we have to at least begin with something manageable. Yeah. Um, this, this kind of reminds me, you might find this funny. Um, I have, I don't know if it's, if it's a, a prediction of the future that is realistic or like a utopian prediction of the future, but I think the, a possible way forward is like the home server where you have all your IOT stuff, but it's run entirely from your home. Um, and just like, like just everyone has a server in their basement the same way everyone has a boiler and like you can do some basic maintenance on it yourself, but like you call the expert in when something breaks. Um, because I feel like a lot of the automation stuff is, is inevitable at this point. Um, but I know, well, I assume at least that as a, like a technologist, you're like, yeah, server in every home. Uh, well, actually, I was going to bring up the the story from our conversation in a previous episode with Rory M. from Cyper, where there was someone who came into a a similarly themed. Uh, I forget what, I forget what they're called. I, I guess they're called. Uh, they're not Cipher parties, um, but. But whatever, I forget what they're actually called. So we'll just say a security awareness, uh, workshop and talked about, um, the need for Tor and the need for PGP and all these other, you know, technologies, including running, you know, running your own server, et cetera. And at the end of this, you know, let's, uh, I don't actually, I wasn't actually there. So I'm going to say it was an hour of talk. Um, you know, he says, does anyone have any questions? And someone raises their hand and he says, yes. And the, the, the person in the audience asked, uh, what do I do when the only computer I have is the one at the library? And I think that's, that's getting to your, your point, which is that we, we can't just have servers. Um, you know, we, we don't all have servers. I, I will say that, that we, that we all seem to have phones. And so maybe, maybe actually the answer is that it needs to start with, um, from a technology. So I'm going to put my geek hat on, right? And maybe mm-hmm. the answer is that we have been, overly um uh focused on the server model and what we really should be thinking about is is eliminating the server at all and thinking about completely peer-to-peer technologies but until that happens you know then yeah i think that we have to accept well or, or you know the other way we could do it is community is is building communities uh, in terms of, you know, well, maybe I can't have a server or you can't have a server, but, but we can collectively get a server. So there's a lot to respond to there. Um, one of the things just being that, uh, you know, mobile, like, your phone is your pocket. I call mine my pocket computer all the time. Um, people everywhere have smartphones and have phones. Um, when I, in 2008, 
before smartphones were a thing. Um, I was living in Mongolia and, um, I was out, uh, in like the countryside and just like everyone had a cell phone. Just like these, 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 these semi-nomadic people had cell phones. Like all of them had cell phones. Like everyone has smartphones and smartphones are being used for economies and smartphones are being used for everything. Um, or phones in general are being used for everything. Uh, like economic transactions are happening that way in lots of parts of the world. Um, which is why there's this whole like range of startups around like money transaction apps and startups even around like how to charge like smartphones in, um, like in places where there are less opportunities to access power. Um, because it's like, A, so that's ubiquitous. Um, the thing about, um, like what do you do when your computer is like the one at the library is that's an interesting question because that might be how you think about your interacting with a computer, but like actually you're just interacting with computers constantly. Plenty of people just don't have them. So, so the idea that community server is a thing, um, that I've heard people talk about before, I was, I was more getting at like, I actually, I think there's, there's a possible world that may or may not be this one where the home server actually is the future though. Um, because people want to, like, I believe, or at least maybe, maybe it's a, a hopeful delusional belief that people are becoming more aware that, like, the cloud is someone else's computer. And that, like, we have peer-to-peer experiences, but there's still this, like, other place where everything is happening. So, like, maybe there's some future where, like, actually every home has a server. So rather than using the cloud, you're using your home server. And that that's just, like, ubiquitous. Um, though the community having them too, like, that makes, I had a conversation with somebody about, like, I think it was somewhere in Mexico that they were, like, installing community servers and having everything, like, within your community being run from that server. So in terms of community or home servers, where these have traditionally done poorly is that they... They typically either require maintenance that is difficult to perform for an individual. Um, and, and as someone who runs his own server, that's my experience. So even just running something simple like, you know, quote unquote simple, like a mail server is actually extremely difficult, even for someone who's been doing it for 20 years, like I have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maintaining my Fediverse server and my Nextcloud server, et cetera. They, these, rec- you know, they, they take time and expertise that not everyone has. And we have not done a great job at making it easy. It's, it's there, these upgrades that need to be performed are not a hundred percent seamless. And I, and I, and I wonder if it's even possible for that to be the case. Putting my, putting my really geeky technology hat on, I think about, um, if we if we do have the home server as the model, then what we really need then are the technologies to allow these servers to to communicate. And I'm going to go back to this peer to peer model. So, you know, maybe you have all your photos on in your home server, and you don't have it on the on the quote unquote cloud because it's just somebody else's computer. The problem is, what happens if you have a fire? Right. What you, what you really want is to be able to leverage your neighbors or your family and have backups on that. You know, that this is why when Chris and I were working more closely with, you know, um, on the data shards project, which isn't dead, but it's been sleeping for a while. 
um, for a few months. Uh, this was, this was a main consideration for us was the ability for people to share storage resources. Um, and, and I think that this is something that we're going to need to do with other types of resources as well, which is, which gets into some of the other episodes we've had on things like OCAP model and, and all that. So, so this isn't, this is episode isn't, isn't totally devoid of, of, um, deep technological content. But I think in order to facilitate the technology, we need to have the conversations. Yeah. So, so my, my like server in everyone's home proposition, um, is based on like a bunch of that. That's why it's like, uh, this is a possible future. Um, is my thought is not about necessarily like you storing your photos. That's certainly part of it. Um, but it's things like running, you know, so you can have your IOT light set up. Um, but have the lights all ported through your own server rather than somebody else's server. That, yeah, that actually makes sense. Yeah, that that's that's what I meant. Got it. Um, well, the thing about community, I can't. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about thinking about uh, this particular topic. Um, huh, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd really like to? dive into before we before we stop we've kind of been all over the place this has been a very winding conversation um casual conversation about user freedom (laughs) casual conversation about user freedom um since since all of your adoring fans are listening to me um uh something that i want more people to think about is so I worked, I worked for the FSF, um, for a few years. And while I was there, I felt like we were rehashing the same conversations again and again about why user freedom isn't, well, not, not even user freedom, why like free software is important. Um, and there, was a point when I realized that we try to come up with these reasons to get people to care about things. We say, you should care about free software because you're at risk. Um, and because like you need your technology to work for you. Uh, but the fact is like, we don't, I, I think we're, we are so stuck on coming up with practical reasons for people to care about things like privacy. Privacy is the best example here, actually. Um, like, you know, we're told privacy matters even if you have nothing to hide because when you normalize surveillance or normalize the lack of privacy, then when you need to have privacy, it's a problem. Um, uh, and like, but it's a problem for, you know, it's a problem for political dissidents and it's a problem for journalists and it's a problem for people who are at risk. Um, and like, that's true. We should care about those people. Like, we really should care about those people. But like, you just have the right to privacy because you have the right to privacy. Like we don't, we don't need to have justifications for why we have that right. Um, well, we haven't you, in the past, but I think that that's, but I think yeah. that's changing with, with the erosion. Um, so I'm going to go back to my psychology. I'm going to put my psychology hat on, right? So I, my, my BA is yeah. actually in, in psychology. And this idea of cognitive dissonance is that you, if you, if you're, if you hold a belief and your actions are not in line with your beliefs, it's your beliefs that change and rather, rather than your actions in, in most cases, or, or you, or you start to suffer psycho psychologically. Um, and so I think as a society, as our privacy has been eroded, 
we've just changed our beliefs on privacy. Yeah. And, and our, like, we come up with, like, we come up with reasons why we, we come up with reasons why we deserve certain things that we say are rights. And, you know, rights are these inherent things that we just have. Like, that, that we have the right to have. Like, and privacy is the thing that you have the right to have. Um, regardless of, of whether or not there's, there's good justification for it. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And I, I mean, I think that the take home, the TLDR version of this, of this podcast is that we have been looking at freedoms in the user freedom community the free software and open source communities. We've been looking at this from an individual standpoint and we have, we have severely neglected the community standpoint. And, and, and by community, we don't mean the free software community. We mean our actual neighbors, our, our you know, our, mm-hmm. our actual family. And, and that, and that means something other than just talking at them about why they should be individually doing something different, but we need to collectively change our conversation. And I think this only for me, and I, and I know that you, you know, as president of the open source initiative may not want to comment on this. So I'm going to only speak for myself, but this is why the concepts of free software are so important here because they, they have always been about the ethics of these issues rather than just the practicalities of, Oh, isn't it nice when you have, um, when you have access to source code, it's been about, well, what is the, but, but as you've pointed out, these conversations about these larger ethical topics seem to have been frozen sometime in the mid nineties. Like we just stopped talking. We, we, we just stopped evolving our thoughts around them. Well, to, just to tie back to something that I think we were talking about earlier, it's, the ethics conversation that we have is about the technology itself, right? You're like, well, what are your, what are your rights to this technology? Not like, how does this technology interact with our rights? Well, I, I, I feel like the, the failing of the conversations we've had about free software and where like those become limited are because they're, so heavily focused on the computing technology that they don't look at what that technology means and they don't look at the context around that technology. Um, and the fact that, that like, we talk about free software, um, and software freedom and user freedom, and they're these distinct things, but they're related to one another. And we actually sometimes even use the terms interchangeably though, without talking about the nuance between them. Um, which I don't, I don't know if before right now I would have said is problematic, but I kind of think now is problematic like at this moment. Um, because it is decontent, like, Computers don't exist in a, like nothing exists in a vacuum. Computers don't exist in a vacuum, right? And, and like, in spite of what people say, any, you know, writing software is political. Like it is a political act, regardless of what you're writing. Um, 
uh, and licensing is a political act. Uh, and then dist- like distribution is a pol- like all these things are political acts because we're putting our individual values into things and we're also giving other people the ability to, to, to manipulate or we're not giving them the ability to manipulate technologies. This is a good place to, to stop and say, uh, since, since this is, since, <laughs> since, uh, everyone listening is going to, this will be 2020 and above. Happy New Year, everyone. But, but in a serious way that this is a, a good place to, to think about how we want to frame these issues in 2020 and beyond. It's, it's, it's time, it's time to take this new decade and, and reframe these conversations that we've been having in, in this serious way. So thank you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. All right. Well, if you want to join, uh, our conversation, uh, offline from the, from the podcast, you can join us at hash Libra lounge on Freenode. You can subscribe to the podcast, obviously at LibraLounge.org. If you are on the Fediverse, we're at Libra Lounge at floss.social. Um, we're on Twitter at Libra Lounge. And, oh, and if you want to email us, it's podcast at LibraLounge.org. So thanks everyone for listening and, uh, hope you've had a great new year and we look forward to doing more episodes again in the coming year. So thanks, Molly. Happy New Year. You've been listening to Libre Lounge. You can find and subscribe to us at LibreLounge.org. This podcast is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Our theme music is Bossa Nova by Joff, which is waved into the public domain under CC0 and which you can find on OpenGameArt.org. If you'd like to support Chris Weber's work on this and other user freedom projects, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash C-W-E-B-B-E-R. Thanks for listening. See you next time.